everybody. Um, you know, probably know me. I'm Terry Givens, um, and I'm a political scientist, and uh, I have been working on issues of immigration, race, anti-discrimination policy, and a trans from a transatlantic perspective for most of my career. And a few years ago, I decided to launch into this book, Radical Empathy, Finding a Path to Bridging Racial Divides. And today we're going to talk about why and how and all of that. Um, and I am so thrilled to have the amazing Angie Coiro here today. She has been in, I'm not going to even ask how many years you've been doing radio and media, um, but she has a very, very distinguished career. And actually, we met um, at Kepler's Books, which is our local um, bookstore here in Menlo Park. And she actually did some of her recordings at Menlo College when I was provost there, and that was fun. And also I've done at least one recording with you when we talked about immigration policy. Yes. Um, but I've been to many events at Kepler's where Angie was the host and interviewer. And so I was so thrilled when she agreed to join us here today. So Angie. <laughs> I'm totally jazzed. I'm so jazzed about this. Well, it's funny. I have to share with you. Terry told me, oh, it's okay if you don't read the book. I'm like, are you kidding? <laughs> well, yeah, I'm glad I read the book so we can start out here. Yes. But you know, first, I kind of want I want to put the book in the context of everything else of this genre, because there are two genres represented here. There mm -hmm. are political books about racism that are really having a peak moment. And then mm -hmm. there's the moment of memoir. Mm -hmm. And you combine the two of those. So mm -hmm. tell me about the points that you wanted to bring forward about empathy, about racism, about your own experience. Tell me the power of personal stories in that. Absolutely, because I really do believe that storytelling is the key here. And that's actually, it's through storytelling that we can develop and practice empathy. And practicing empathy is one of the, you know, I have six steps to radical empathy. But you know, to talk a little bit more about the moment before I get into those six steps, um, I could see that we, you know, there's been this long-standing emphasis on diversity training and, and trying to get people to understand things like unconscious bias. And I realized, you know, it, it's hard to do that without empathy, right? If you can't put yourself in somebody else's shoes, somebody can give you the definition of unconscious bias and give you some examples, but you know, it really needs to come from here, from from the heart and you know, that's why I say the first step to radical empathy is a willingness to be vulnerable. We have to be willing to be vulnerable with ourselves first and with each other. And that's where you can really be practicing empathy. But also, I wanted to connect it to what was happening. You know, this I really started the working on this around 2016. And if you remember that summer, there was, again, a lot of movement. With, you know, that's when Black Lives Matter started, really. And um I had an event at Menlo College where we had people coming and talking about the moment and you know how we could deal with issues of race and, and you know what, what really struck me was people who stood up and still told their stories. And we also had I've had several incidents, not incidents, but experiences where I've had students you know tell me their stories about what it's like and it resonated with me in so many different ways because I have my own stories and what I wanted to be able to do is help people understand how my stories connect to what's happening in the news, what's happening in research, you know, what's happening in a day to day. And so I really felt like this was my opportunity as a researcher to connect what's happening to my life story in a way that could would hopefully get people to understand my perspective and what it's like to be me. Mm -hmm. Well, and, you know, as far as the timing goes, it, it's not just 
as you were talking about, since 2016, we've, we've been in such a racial awareness window that we have to take advantage of. But mm -hmm. the other thing that's happening is that there's a great loss of empathy, and I'm gonna include myself in this, where you can feel justified on for giving up on other people. Mm -hmm. You've seen so much hate, yes. um, so much ugliness, mm -hmm. and you can feel that as a moment where you can wash your hands and walk away from it because you've done your empathy, it's still out there, I got other things to do. So talk about, first of all, tell me what radical empathy is and then put it into that picture. Right, and so radical empathy really, you know, so let me just quickly talk through the, the six steps because I'm, we'll get that out of the way. But um, I already mentioned, you know, the first step is a willingness to be vulnerable. And the reason I start with looking at yourself and, and the, the, to mention the second step is becoming grounded in who you are. And the reason I start with those two points is because for me, I had to do that work. We all have to do that work because we have to understand how we all fit into this broader scheme of structural racism and frankly, white supremacy, right? Our country was built on this and every aspect of our lives is impacted by structural racism. And, you know, we have to understand, you know, my neighbors aren't racist per se, but we live in a community that was built on racism because, you know, there were codes that kept people from being able to live here years ago, you know, the way redlining, you know, not being able to get loans, not being able to get the jobs that would allow you to live here. I mean, it's just layered, right? Mm -hmm. And if we don't understand that, then, and how we fit into that system, then it's very difficult to change it. I think, you know, we, we need to get to the point where we can make that next level change where we really try to break down structural racism. And we have to do it by understanding how each and every one of us, myself included, are a part of it and how we perpetuate it. And so that was a lot of the work I had to do and, and willingness to be vulnerable and you know, becoming grounded in who I am. You know, it's, it's really been important to me to have that grounding because I talk about how I went through my years of cognitive dissonance in my twenties and, um, I felt like, and I know a lot of us go through this, but for me, it was really based on the fact that I had, you know, I, I talk about how my parents, you know, grew up in a white city, Spokane, Washington. I didn't have a lot of black friends. I did have some, but, you know, I just felt disconnected for, not only from the black, you know, culture in Spokane, but also from family. Uh, we never really visited family in Los Angeles or Pittsburgh. You know, we had, occasionally we'd have some family members come visit, but, you know, when I, gotten to, you know, when I went to UCLA for grad school and so on, I, I really tried to reach out and get together with my cousins. And, and I eventually did visit Opelousas, Louisiana, where my mom and, and I've been to visit Pittsburgh and saw where my dad grew up and went to school. And so for me, it was really important to make those connections because I felt mm -hmm. I didn't have them growing up. So in my 20s, though, I, I really tried to reconcile who I was, you know, you know, when you grow up, um, you know, people tell you that, oh, you're talking white or you're the smart kid, you know, things like that. And so I had to finally just get to the point where uh, with some therapy <laughs> and so on, just to be comfortable with who I am and that, yes, I can be part of the black culture in the black world. And, but also I, you know, I live in, in, in work in a world that doesn't necessarily support African-Americans in the way that it should. So yeah. trying to come to grips with those things and, to be prepared myself to create change. So, um, you know, the third step to radical empathy is opening yourself to the experience of others, then um, practicing empathy. So I, you know, I have to practice empathy all the time. 
And next is taking action because it's it's one thing to have empathy and put yourself in somebody else's shoes, but it's a whole other thing to say, okay, what am I going to do about that? Now that I understand that that person is feeling oppressed, and you know, I talk about internalized oppression and, and lots of different ways. And um, what's the action that I can take? So for me, you know, the action I took in terms of responding to the internalized oppression I felt was to to say, no, I'm not going to let that <laughs> hold me back. And I am going to reach out and be part of uh, my, you know, reach out to family members, reach out to the community and do what I can to help us get past the structural racism. And then step six is creating change and building trust. Mm -hmm. So, and that's really important. I, I really get into that more at the end of the book where I talk about transitional justice and, and the, you know, what I saw in Germany and, and South Africa. Yeah, yeah, there's, there's a lot to get into. I, I want to talk about, you know, when you talk about coming to terms with yourself, mm -hmm. your family background was really interesting. I'm one of those yes. people who believes that if you can get down into the real depths of who you are and how you were brought up, almost everyone has an absolutely fascinating story. And one of the mm -hmm. things that stood out to me about your family, they were in a position of trying to give their kids mm -hmm. the best life possible. Yeah. And part of the way they internalized how to give you the best life possible included turning their backs on family members. Mm -hmm. which sounds inexplicable. So can you put those two thoughts together? What, what were they thinking? What were they trying to do? Well, you know, it's really interesting. I had a moment um, a few years ago. About, it was a lot, a lot, my mother passed away in 2010. And, you know, I, I spent a lot of time thinking about how she was raised and, and so on and so forth. And, you know, I, and then I read Isabel Wilkerson's book, um, you know, uh, The Warmth of Other Sons. And that really helped me to understand, you know, why she left Louisiana for Los Angeles, because there's one particular story in there that talks about a doctor who left Louisiana and was, you know, became a doctor to the stars in LA. But, you know, it, it connected me with that, you know, how so much of our family left Los An Louisiana for Los Angeles. And so I, I really tried to um, connect with that. And, you know, I thought about the fact, you know, my, my grandfather in Opelousas, you know, had been a sharecropper and my mother was a seamstress in Los Angeles. And then I was a, you know, a, a PhD a professor. And that's what, you know, they wanted in that, you know, that's what, you know, I was the hope that they were looking for. And so I, I could understand, you know, my parents' motivations behind the way they raised us and so on, because they, especially my father, having been in the military, I mean, the military is all about, you know, following the rules and, and, you know, being part of the group and so on. Although he certainly felt racism, <laughs> there's a great picture in the book <laughs> that really shows how isolated he was as an African-American uh, in the uh, NCO school. Yeah. But, um, but, you know, I, 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 so basically for me, it was important to develop some compassion because I, I have to admit, I felt angry towards my parents because I just, I was like, why don't I know more of this family? And, you know, why, why haven't I been more connected? But then I realized, you know, they have their, their rationales and I have to have compassion for what they were, were hoping and, and trying to do for us. So um, in any case, uh, it, that was a, a big part of it was um, seeing that they were just trying to do you know, the best for us. And that's, mm -hmm. that's what they understood. That's what they knew. That's, that's, and frankly, you know, it, it, for me, for, for all of my siblings, really, it, it worked out. We've all had relatively successful lives. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's been an, an interesting journey, but we've all also realized we want 
for us, we've, we've tried to stay very connected. We actually, we talk every week on, on Zoom and, um, you know, we want our kids to be connected. So we, we've also really encouraged our children to be more connected and, you know, we, we connect with our cousins and, and aunts and uncles and who are left and um, mostly aunts. And, uh, you know, so there, there are, you know, we can move past these things, but also, you know, under, try to understand them. Mm-hmm. You know, something struck me in your description of, of growing up with your family. I mean, we all know about colorism. We all know mm-hmm. about the paper bag test. Your mother actually wanted you to have darker skin than she had. Yes. I'd never encountered that before. What was well, you have, to, you have to read the book, The Vanishing Half. <laughs> it actually is really interesting. Noted. Yeah, it talks about that. I, actually, I was, I, I, our book club decided to read The Vanishing Half. And I was just like, oh my God, the mother's from Opelousas, Louisiana. And she lives in this fictional town that's where everybody's light-skinned and they just try to get lighter. And then the twins, you know, one went off and married a white man. One went off and, and married uh, a dark-skinned black man. And, you know, she wanted to do that. And I was like, wow, you know, mom would always tell us, you know. And I think for her, it was because, you know, I, and I'm only guessing, I can't you know, know what was going on when she was you know, growing up in the 1930s, but I suspect part of it had to do with the fact that she didn't want her kids to have that ambiguity, right? Uh-huh. And I think being light-skinned, you know, I remember dad, or one of mom or dad told us a story about one time, you know, they were at a hotel, you know, checking into a hotel and, you know, saw mom sitting in the car and the guy was like, oh, what are you doing with that white woman? It's like, she's not a white woman, you know, that's my wife. And um, so, you know, that whole issue of colorism just is such a, a deep one in, in our society. Uh, mm-hmm. So I don't want to flash forward too much because we got a lot of, of older story to cover, but can you compare and contrast, you know, raising your two biracial children with your parents' experience of you know, a, a light colored mother mm-hmm. and what they were trying to accomplish? Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's different. I think it's, it's a lot different for me because, um, you know, I remember, so, you know, being the youngest of seven, yeah, we kind of went through a process where like my one of my sisters you know she was dating white guys and mom wasn't happy with that but then she kind of reconciled to it and then my you know she got married to a white guy and uh, I remember my mom coming and telling me at some point okay as as long as you marry a guy it's okay I don't care what color they are (laughs) which of course is a whole other you know set of issues uh, because we do have LGBTQ members in the family but um you know, I, I, it was, it was interesting to watch that progression of, you know, acceptance, you know, of that. And so in any case, you know, by the time I had my boys, um, you know, I feel like I, I'd been through a lot of, you know, developing understanding around these issues. And so for my boys, um, you know, being biracial, it's, it's very important to them to have that multicultural, you know, identity. So, you know, again, it's like, they're kind of like me in the sense that they don't want to be pigeonholed, mm-hmm. you know, that oh, you're the smart kid or, you know, you're, you're the, the, you know, the kid who talks a certain way or whatever. And they, you know, they want to be able to have the freedom to define themselves. And so that's what I've really tried to, to give them is, is that freedom. And, you know, I'm certainly not going to try to impose any particular identity on them but I really do try to give them the freedom to have their own identity. And that's what's important. But, you know, I have to give them some support in that because I know my, you know, again, you you get to your 20s, that's like my older son. And, you know, we talk a lot about these issues and race and and so on. And, 
um, you know, and again, you know, they're growing, they, they grew up in um, Austin, you know, up until, uh, you know, five years ago, and we've lived, so we've lived here for five years, and, you know, the, both of the neighborhoods we were in, actually, I think our neighborhood in Austin was more diverse <laughs> than our neighborhood here, um, but both of the school, the schools they went to were, were pretty diverse, um, mm -hmm. and so they've, they've always had, you know, a range of friends. Actually, what cracks me up is my younger son, Brandon, all his friends are, are in, you know, kind of international. He's one friend whose parents are from Sweden and French and Turkish and, um, you know, Latino, Hispanic, uh, you know, so he's got a whole range of friends that he hangs out with. It sounds so healthy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it just sounds so healthy. I, I think um, this generation is a lot more healthy about these things, although there's, you know, there's certainly issues, but um, I think they're a lot more healthy about it than my, our generation certainly was. Yeah. You know, when you got into Stanford, um, you actually used the phrase about worrying about whether you were an authentic black person. Mm -hmm. And if someone were to have stopped you at the time, I mean, you put yourself in that frame of mind from that time and said, well, what is an authentic black person? What definition would you have come up with? Well, you know, there was a, so that it's kind of the, the stereotype, right? You know, you have to talk a certain way, you have to act a certain way, you know, and I, I think the one thing that, that struck me at Stanford was there was, you know, there was kind of a group of us who, would um, just kind of hang out with everybody. And then there, like, I, I, I think I tell the story of, you know, the, there was a couple girls down the hall who would always eat with them, eat with other black, only other black people. So you've heard, I, I talk about the book, um, why do all the black kids sit at you know, the same table? Um, and uh, so that was really interesting to think through, you know, what we're, and, and you know, so actually it was really great for me to read that book because I got a much better understanding of, you know, what that was like for those kids coming from more, you know, predominantly black neighborhoods and, and you know, church, yeah, I was raised Catholic, you know, churches, communities. And so having that the ability to hang out with other black students was, was important to them. They needed that. And at the although at the time for me, I felt like I needed to be, you know, it's funny because it ties in with kind of what my parents wanted is I, I needed to be part of the broader, you know, dorm and, and to have my friends and, and not necessarily define them by race. And what I think we have to get and what I had to get to and what we all have to get to is to let, you know, basically we just have to let people be who they're going to be. <laughs> Um, and, you know, I was the kid who, who you know, I, I mean, my, yeah, my friend Jamie is on here from, you know, we both grew up in Spokane and she happened to live down the hall from me and, you know, we became best buddies after that because, you know, we both grew up in the same town, even played volleyball against each other. And so, you know, having that freedom to, you know, choose you know, your friends and so on without worrying about a lot of this overhanging stuff. And I think that's the goal, right, is we want to be able to just you know, have empathy and, and understand each other, but also just to allow ourselves to be who we are. I, I spent a lot of time kind of going into that because we, like I said, we want to put people into boxes. And so I spend a lot of time in the book kind of talking about this idea of, you know, how we all feel this pressure of stereotypes and, and so on. And so I think for me back in, you know, when I started at Stanford, my, I had a very stereotypical <laughs> perception myself and I had to really work out of that and, and understand that, you know, I, I mean, there were, there's actually our dorm at, at Stanford was pretty diverse as well. We had a really interesting group of people and nobody really, um, 
you know, it, it was better not to try and categorize people, basically. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so. You know, you mentioned Spokane, and I, so I want to go with your backstory a little bit more because your parents went to Spokane deliberately because it was more peaceful. They were, you know, there were race riots going on. It's all kind of, you know, um, all kind of tension, mm -hmm. and they felt that Spokane would be a more peaceful, safer place for you to grow up. Mm -hmm. So I'd love to know what your perception was of the violence going on elsewhere. And in fact, I want to back up even further from that. 1968, you said that when Martin Luther King was assassinated, you really didn't talk about it at your house. So what mm -hmm. was your perception about what was happening in the rest of the country about racism? I had no perception. <laughs> you know, that's what's interesting. But so I really didn't gain a perception, even though, you know, we would watch the news and so on. I didn't gain a perception until I got to elementary school. And you know, you can imagine in a, you know, today in general, we don't do a good job of teaching black history or the civil rights movement. So what I did was, I, you know, I, I, it's interesting. I was reading a story today about curiosity. I was always curious. So one of the things I remember is, um, and I can't remember which year it was, but when uh, Barbara Jordan spoke at the Democratic National Convention. That had such a huge impact on me. Um, so she, and that, the fact that I got to be at UT Austin where she was a professor and all that, that I would just, I loved that, the fact that, um, you know, I, she, I got to be involved in some activities at the LBJ school, but I'm getting off on a tangent. Um, <laughs> but so watching, you know, strong women figures like Shirley Chisholm and Barbara Jordan and, and so on kind of opened up my eyes to the broader things that were going on around the civil rights and, and movement and so on. And so I started reading. Um, I'm a huge reader and my mother, you know, would always, uh, you know, have to, um, uh, I think it was 76, Shelley's uh, saying, 1976, I think was that, uh, um, uh, Democratic Convention with Barbara Jordan. But in any case, um, you know, I, I, basically I grabbed every book out of the library I could about Martin Luther King, about Jackie Robinson. You know, I, was, I ran track, so I was really into, um, you know, uh, some of the different runners and, and so on. And, and box, you know, Muhammad Ali was a huge figure at the, at the time. And, and so, um, you know, I guess my, my, really learning about that started more when I was in elementary school and trying to gain an understanding of it. But, you know, we just didn't talk about it a whole lot. And, um, and so it was, you know, and you, you know, if you were around back then in the late sixties, you know, the, Martin Luther King was not a popular figure. That's, it's, it's interesting to see how he's been transformed, but um, yeah, it's, it's really interesting. Some of the narratives, it's funny because you did mention, I think it was the Smithsonian that reports that he had a, a disapproval rating like 73, 76%. Exactly. And of course now it feels like, oh, he was always embraced. And some of the narratives that grow up around these stories are interesting to me. And you posit yourself throughout the book, you're not only a black woman, you're a black woman. Mm -hmm. And some of the narratives around women in, in racial progress, Rosa Parks, for some mm -hmm. reason, was more acceptable to us as a woman who was just tired and mm -hmm. refused to move. And of course that wasn't the case at all. I mean, this was yeah. strategic. This was, she was an activist. And for some reason, it was easier for us to take the story that this was some poor woman who just had tired feet. Oh yeah, she is a seamstress and she was tired and didn't want to get up. Uh, and it's just like, no, you know, it, and it's funny, you know, we're, this story really has just been coming out 
I think in the last five, 10 years, it's not. And, and so, you know, this, the kids for, for so many years have been learning in, in school. Oh yeah. She was just tired and didn't want to get up. It's like, no, she was, and not only was she an activist, she was, she was assisting women who had been raped and, and, and so on. And, and it was, you know, an amazing, the, her story is so amazing when you really mm-hmm. get the, the full of it, but that's, you know, it, it, it's the way that, um, we tend to try to, to sanitize history, right? And that's why so many people are trying to, I think the 1619 Project is uh, you know, important component of that. And there's so many people out there and researchers and historians and so on who are trying to, to really get the real stories out there. Um, but we're even seeing it in you know, the film, right? There's a lot of films that we've been watching a lot of, of uh, you know, the films that like the One Night in Miami, you know, it's fictionalized, but still it's it's really interesting to to learn more about, um, you know, what happened because the stuff ha- that they show that happened after the, the fictional night is real. So mm-hmm. um, so some of this is really interesting to, to rethink and to look back on. And, and you know, a lot of fig- female figures are, are really coming up now, like Nina Simone and, and her activism. And there's a new movie coming out about, about Billie Holiday as well, who, um, you know, the FBI went after her. And, and yeah. so, yeah. Yeah, all these hidden stories. Mm-hmm. What did you, what lessons did you take away about the narratives of being a young black woman when you went out into the world? What did what did you find out that you had to probe about what you had internalized, not just about being black, but about being a woman in competitive situations and academic situations? What did you have to deal with? Well, I had to really think about um, how I felt like I was trying too hard to fit into the system. As those who know me know, I left academia a few years ago, and part of it had to do with my realization and this probably happened around 2010 I remember because it was around right after my mother had passed away and I really start realizing that you know not everybody has my best interest in mind you know not that that's ever true but um thinking through what I really wanted from my career and you know, I, I realized that in many ways I'd kind of been fighting against taking on, you know, the, the issues around uh, social justice and so on, but that, you know, it was okay to, to, you know, work on those issues. And so I started off by, you know, I started my own organization, but anyway, the, the, the main point to answer your question is that, um, you know, I just started to come to this realization that I, I, you know, I did have my own internal capacity to address these issues in a way that maybe others didn't. And so that was important to me to step out and um, not just be part of the system. And, you know, academia is very hierarchical and structured and, and all of this. And, you know, part of it had to do with being disappointed by some people who kind of let me down. But it was also my own realization that I had to be not only my own best advocate, but an advocate for others. And not that I hadn't been doing that already, but to really take that on in a way that um, would allow me to hopefully make some change in the system. So I always tell people, you know, I feel like I could do more outside of academia than I could inside. Mm-hmm. But I also see that, you know, academia, there's some change happening, not enough. Um, so there may be other ways that, that I can, uh, you know, deal with that. But the, the realization to me was, you know, right in that time period, you know, around 2010, where I decided that I was going to have to leave academia to change it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You devote a whole chapter to finding love. 
Oh gosh, here we go. <laughs> yeah, this one's fun. <laughs> but um, one of the things that you go into and that you go into this examination about the commonalities you have to find in a partner, in yes. your particular case, you found yourself kind of hiding your education because that was a turnoff for some of the black men that you encountered. Not just black men, but yeah. Not just black men, yeah. <laughs> you find out that with black men, that was that made it even more difficult. Mm -hmm. And um, you talked about, first you laid out the case of, here's why it's so hard to cross barriers when you're looking for a partner. But then you express optimism that it really can be done. Oh yeah. So if we know that it's hard to look at another class, it's hard to look at another color, how do you how do you expand that definition of who's an appropriate mate? Well, you know, it, it depends on the person, right? I mean, so what was most important to me was finding somebody, <clears throat> excuse me, who shared my values. And you know, it's funny because I, I look at my relationship with Mike, my, my husband, as kind of being a yin-yang. You know, we're not the same in any by any stretch. We're we're very different, but the ways we're different are complementary. And so, you know, I, it's interesting because I was having a discussion about a week ago about interracial relationships with a, a group of folks. And, um, you know, there was a guy who was saying, oh, you know, I, I, I was, you know, he was here in the San Francisco Bay Area and he had a PhD and, you know, he was trying to find, you know, these women and, you know, all these women saying they couldn't find a man. And I was there like, well, we didn't meet. I'm sorry. <laughs> so, you know, I, I don't want to say that it wasn't possible to find, you know, a match uh, with, uh, you know, I actually I tried for many years to, to find a match with an African-American man, but it didn't work out. And I met Mike and it was magic. And <laughs> Jamie, who's on here, knows the whole story. But, um, <laughs> you know, really, it was, uh, you know, beyond just, you know, the initial attraction, it was, you know, the fact that I knew he would, you know, for, I mean, that he wasn't intimidated or didn't feel, you know, he, he was happy to support me as I was out there doing my thing. You know, he's an engineer. He sits here on his computer, you know, he's, you know, I'm the one who's out there marching and giving, you know, doing stuff like this, writing books, giving talks, you know, being the vice provost. <laughs> he was always, you know, it's funny when I was at UT Austin, we would, um, <laughs> oh gosh, um, Jamie says you can reach out to her for the dirt and Rhonda. <laughs> you guys will get your chance later. Um, but, um, you know, it, it was really interesting uh, as we kind of got to know each other better. And, you know, we, we both love to go. We both love actually jazz was one of the things that brought us together initially. Um, and then we, um, you know, we both love camping. We still go camping. Um, but you know, the, the most important thing to me at the time was somebody who was a real partner. You know, I needed, I knew I was going to have a very high powered career, you know, as an academic, I, I actually, right when we got together, I decided to go back to graduate school and, you know, but I also knew we, you know, we, we wanted kids. And so if we were going to have kids, that meant that, um, we were, you know, he was going to have to play a big role. And so we talked about that a lot before we got married. And I, you know, and I said, look, you know, I'm a Europeanist, I'm gonna have to travel, you know, you're gonna have to be very involved with the kids. And he didn't have a problem with that. And, he, you know, he's never had a problem, you know, and not that a man should, but sometimes they do. You know? <laughs> and, um, and so for me, it was really the whole issue of, um, finding somebody who was supportive and 
you know, and, and I, I have to be honest, I, I'm not the kind of person who it takes a lot of nurturing <laughs> in the sense that um, I, 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 you know, my, my sisters know, I, I, we, we all tend to be very independent minded, <laughs> but to have somebody who can do the nurturing when necessary, nurturing when necessary. When necessary. <laughs> yeah. So, so, you know, I mean, I, I'd gone out with guys who just wanted to be really protective and all. It's like, I don't need that. <laughs> I can't see anybody doing that with you. <laughs> no, I'm, 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 yeah, not that I don't need nurturing at all. I do, but you know, I, I want a partner. I want so, somebody who's my equal. Um, and, you know, and the, from the intellectual sparring to the physical activity, you know, we go out and do these 15 mile hikes and, you know, we have to be able to keep up with each other. And, <laughs> you know, Wait, I, that, that goes to something else that you give a lot of play in the book and it's very important. And mm-hmm. that is healthcare discrepancies and healthiness, fitness mm-hmm. in the black communities. Mm-hmm. And you use your own father as, as an example here. Yeah, I hope I start the book with that story. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. And it's not uncommon for the signs of a heart attack, early signs of a heart attack to be ignored. That's universal. What ties into that that has definite racist components is access and information and education and being taken seriously as a black person in issues of health. So can, can you expound on that, how it played out in your own family? Yeah, so, you know, when my father had a heart attack, you know, as the researcher, the first thing I did is start digging into, and he passed away from that heart attack, you know, there was no precursor. Although we, there was a point where he probably did have a, a cardiac event and we didn't know what, what it was. <clears throat> but in any case, after I started doing the, all the digging, I realized just being an African-American male is a, is a risk factor for heart attack, which just, I couldn't believe it. And um, then I, you know, the more I learned, the more I realized, you know, why hadn't my father had a, a, you know, the distress test and, you know, all these other things. And, and I think, and I, the more I learned about that, just our healthcare systems and so on is that, and even talking to my friend who, who's a doctor, you know, it, it just, everything around it, we have to be very careful as African-Americans because, you know, one of the, I, I remember the moment when I was driving around in Berkeley one day and I heard the story on NPR that was talking about how black women, regardless of class, or wealth or education are more likely to have you know, poor maternal and fetal outcomes. And I was just like, wow, you know, that's crazy in this day and age, you know, <laughs> that just being black is a risk factor. And it doesn't matter how, I mean, Serena Williams is the perfect a- example of this. And so I, I just, I was so blown away by all of this and, and really got me to thinking more and realizing that we need desperately to have change in the way we deal with these things. You know, I mean, it's one thing to have the, the blatant police shootings, but just to know that in everyday life, you know, just the simple act of going to the doctor um, or to needing health care, and you know, obviously a heart attack is not simple, but still, um, you know, can it's you just, found, by the way, everybody may not know the Serena Williams story. So can you, Oh, right. Yeah. So yeah. Serena Williams, when she had her child afterwards, she could tell that something was wrong and she kept telling her doctors and nurses, you know, look, something's wrong. This is not right. And so finally they, they paid attention to her, you know, and she had, uh, um, uh, I'm going to forget the name of it, pulmonary alcoholism, but, um, a blood clot mm-hmm. that could have killed her if they hadn't caught it in time. And so, um, 
Yeah, and so that was a, a wake up call. You know, and then there was a, several articles in the New York Times talking about poor uh, uh, maternal outcomes. You know how some women died in childbirth, um, despite the fact that you know they were healthy and and so on. And, and of course, obviously, we're seeing the 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 situation with COVID, where African Americans are more likely to get it and more likely to die. Um, and now we're having difficulty getting the vaccines to the, the right communities. So I, I'm actually working on that with some folks here. I know uh, uh, my friend Amy's on, who's trying to make sure we get the word out to the different communities here to make sure they have access to the vaccines. But that, you know, all of these things, that's why I say, you know, structural racism is, is just endemic. It's, it's part of every aspect of our lives. Um, and, uh, you know, it's really important that we understand that. So it's not, you know, because the, the reason I, I really get into this in such detail is because we need to understand that it's not just pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, right? Mm -hmm. You know, my success is partly due to, you know, my parents and what they did for me and, and of course, all my hard work, but, you know, there, there's, there's always barriers, you know, and we have to figure out how to tear down those barriers in a way that we all understand, you know, because we can't be the only ones seeing those barriers, meaning us, you know, black people and people of color and so on. Everybody has to see the barriers so we can tear them down. And that's why empathy is so important, right? You have mm -hmm. to be able to understand, you know, how horrible it was for us to lose our parents to, to heart disease when, you know, they should have had access to, to better care and, and how awful it is uh, to lose, uh, you know, other family members, cancer, you know, uh, yeah, all kinds of, of different things that, you know, there's clearly um, bias in how people are treated. Mm -hmm. The one that blew me away in the book that you mentioned, and tell me if I'm remembering this correctly, that when you were dealing with endometriosis, mm -hmm. your doctor who finally took you seriously told you that there are people in his profession who don't believe Black women get endometriosis. What? Yep. Where, how, do, how does that even figure? They're, they're, you know, it's, I, I have a, a um, site in there about how, you know, a really high percentage of medical students think Black people can't feel pain the same way that white people do. Just amazing. Yeah, I know. Some of the stuff I uncovered when I was doing this research was just... I, I couldn't believe it, but you know you, that. But then you know that's why I connect it to my personal stories, right? Because then those stories start to make sense. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Unfortunately, so that when I understand that there are all these doctors out there, like this this doctor who died from COVID recently, she was you know on video begging her doctors to give her and nurses to give her pain medication, and and you know they 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 were trying to get her to leave the hospital <laughs> when she was you know. Uh, needed a you know help with breathing and, and so on. So you know it's it's interesting because uh, my doctor friend and I have kind of come up with a checklist of things that doctors should have to go through. Um, and so yeah, Tarrant put the quote in there: half of white medical trainees believe the myth that black people have thicker skin or less sensitive. I mean, it's just ridiculous. You think of people who would believe in science, you would start with doctors. You would think. But, you know, that's why I say we all live in the sea of white supremacy. So for doctors, you know, white is normal and, you know, black is something else and Hispanic is something else. And so we have to, that's why we have to be intentional um, and make sure, you know, I use the word intentionality a lot because we all are, are swimming in this, right? We, we all have this to deal with and have to remind ourselves. And so if we're not intentional about dealing with these issues, 
um, you know, then we aren't going to get change. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, so thanks to Christina and Joseph for, for your comments, because it just shows that these things are, are you know, it doesn't matter that, um, you know, my parents were middle class and, 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 you know, they still got poor treatment when it came to, to their health care. Let's talk about injecting radical empathy into conversations about race. Mm -hmm. And I think you gave a very important quote in the book, and this was Patricia Roberts Miller. She said, racism isn't about intent or whether people have their feelings hurt. Racism is about actions, policies, structures, practices, systems, institutions mm -hmm. that reinforce the racial hierarchies of a mm -hmm. culture. Right. When you tell a person that they, by virtue of being born in America, by virtue mm -hmm. of being born here, We've learned to other other people. Ergo, we are racist. We will other people on the basis of race. They don't look at a definition like Robert Miller's definition. They look mm -hmm. like, you're telling me I'm a bad person. Mm -hmm. It's so, there's such a catch 22 trying to get people out of that. Mm -hmm. And what I often see is a white person seeking information yet again from a black person who's had it up to here with explaining the world white people and you can't get anywhere. Mm -hmm. just, it really is a catch 22. So take that picture and put radical empathy into that picture for me. So the reason I, I start, that's why I start with the, the person, the individual. Okay. So going out and reading Robin D'Angelo's book is not going to fix things. <laughs> you, you read the book, you feel guilty, you know, okay. The, what you have to do is 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 deep look inside and and really understand. You know, that's why I tell people. You know, people, what can I do? What can I do? And by the way, at the end of each chapter, there is um, activities you can do, and we also have a reading guide that lists the, the various activities by chapter and different readings you can do. But um, the one thing I tell people: start with your neighborhood. You know, if you want to start doing that internal look, look at where you live, and why you live there. You know, where or where you grew up, and why does the place you grew up looked the way it does. I mean, African-Americans have been here for 400 years, <laughs> you know? Um, why is it that we aren't, you know, more widespread? Why do, why, you know, yeah, you can look right here it, where I live, you know, East Palo Alto used to be the, the, the place, you know, one of the interesting things about this area, actually, I discovered when I came back to work at Menlo College is I started looking at the data and, you know, in 2005, uh, African-Americans were 7% of the population here on the, in this area of the peninsula, in San Mateo County, and they dropped down to 2%. Mm. Um, and so that was really stunning to me. Um, and so, yeah, it, it's really important that we keep in mind that, you know, this is, again, the structures are there and we have to change policies. And actually I'm talking to the folks in here in Menlo Park about trying to do more about that because we, you know, we don't have, a, we need a, a diversity task force to look at race usage of race. And we just did a session about the color of law um, that talks about racial segregation here in, in this area and how the different laws. So it is laws, you know, have created what we have today. Yeah. You know, there's a, there's a sub-narrative, there's a, a subtext to a lot of times when you talk about trying to achieve racial equality and trying to achieve racial justice, there's a zero-sum game mentality that you come up against, mm -hmm. which might be easier to confront if it was overt, but it's subtext in a lot of cases. If I give you 
something that I have, I will lose part of that. Mm -hmm. If I give you equal access to jobs, I'll lose access to jobs. If I give you reparations, I'm going to have less. How do you tackle that? Um, well, it's it, you know, the reality is you know, basically we can lift all boats, but you know the the reality is that we have to you know people have to understand it's not a zero sum game, and actually there's a really good book that just came out. I think it's called The Sum of Us. Um, and I can't remember the name of the author. I should have brought that with me, but um, at Terrence, I'll probably look it up. But um, it just it literally, yeah, it literally just came out, and, and it's like a, an economic look take on this issue, right? Of if we give you know jobs and, and opportunity to this group, it doesn't mean that this group is losing. The reality is we all all do better, um, and so. Terrence right on top of it. <laughs> She's got the link to the book. And um, I think that's a really important thing to understand. Now, there are some things that are zero sum. When I take the job as provost at Menlo College, that means a white male doesn't have it. But guess what? I'm probably going to help a lot of people who will then help that, that uh, white you know, white man do better in, in his career and his life, right? You know, there it's not a zero. So we have to help people to understand that it's not a zero sum game. And that, um, you know, this country has always had an, an you know, we're an engine of growth when we all work together. And there's no reason we can't continue growing. In fact, um, you know, I, I think uh, Heather McGee's book really talks about the fact that we're actually holding us ourselves back by mm -hmm. not allowing, because think of all the productivity, all the creative creativeness, all the, you know, things that, you know, there's a really interesting, another, um, I was listening to a podcast, uh, and one of the women on there was a, a neuroscientist at Stanford. And she was saying, you know, we have to, what she's learned in her research is that everybody has capacity. You know, that she's even moving away from this idea of growth mindset because we can all learn. That, so we have to get away from this idea that there, there's a hierarchy that some people can learn and some people can't. Everybody can. And if we understand that, then it, it really changes the way we approach education and learning and, and how we interact with people. But mm -hmm. anyway, a lot of stuff in there. But I think you know, if we want to jump to some of the questions that we have been getting. Well, first, I, I want to commend Shelly first, because she pointed out that what we're talking about is not a pie here. There's X right. amount of pie. And once, once one person gets too much, that, that's a great mm -hmm. visual. I appreciate that. Mm -hmm. um, Amy's asking, how do we get keep the younger generation from becoming complacent? I want to break that down into a couple of components. Do you think the younger generation is getting complacent? And if you do think that is an issue, then how do you deal with that? Um, I, my only concern there in terms of being complacent is I, I sometimes I think they feel like the, the, the issues aren't there, even though they see them, you know, the, I think it's easy when you're young, and I, I admit this, when I was young, I, I felt like, you know, oh, I can't be touched by that stuff that's happening over there, and so I think it's important to be honest with our youth, and make sure they understand, obviously, that we love and support them, but that there are issues that we all have to grapple with, and so I'd, I'd say there's a lot of youth who, um, you know, are very, you know, in touch with what's going on and are out there doing the work. Um, and, and, you know, not all of them are going to do that. Uh, so we have to keep that in mind. It's, it's a, you know, a question of, you know, what they want to do and how. And I think that complacency, you know, actually, I'm really not that worried about complacency because I just see so much going on with young people. I, you know, I'm on college campuses and I have my own sons. And I really do feel like 
there is this ongoing push and, and I think they're really pushing us to change. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, that's, you know, when they, they see what's going on and, and I do really think that, you know, my son's generation is really wants us to change. They, they, they feel like they're, you know, more understanding and more connected, but that we need to do more. There's a great story around that. You mentioned in the book, Clay Carson, Clayton Carlson from, uh, from Stanford. Mm -hmm. And of course, he, he's a world famous yes. uh, educator in mm -hmm. equal rights and in, in, in racial equality. My professor and, when I was at Stanford. There you go. Well, I interviewed him <laughs> a couple of years ago. Yeah. I no, I was, I was there the, the, with um, the guy who, it was, it was something about the South. Um, yes. That's yeah. one of your events I went to. Yes. <laughs> and he was talking about, I, re I really enjoyed this with him. He was talking about trying to bring younger people up with empathy and understanding and the ability to confront injustice. And then he got stuck mm -hmm. on the bridge one day because the kids over near Stanford were protesting and they were in the streets and they were fighting for equality. And he had this double-edged moment where he's saying, on the one hand, I'm not gonna get where I'm trying to go here. That's a little irritating. On the other hand, they're doing exactly what I told them to do. So there's your disconnect. I thought that was a great story from him. Yeah. And actually, I want to address Joseph's question. He's asking, can you talk more about how empathy can link to action? Because that, that's yes. an important point. And um, yes, absolutely. Empathy. Actually, that's the whole point of radical empathy, right, is action. And so um, one of the things I tell people when, when they're starting to do that inner work, you know, first of all, do the inner work, but also look at look around you, get out of your comfort zone. You know, I, I, I we probably shouldn't have gone, but a year ago we went to Lunar New Year because I'd never been and, and I wanted to understand something different. Um, and uh, you know, I, I do try to kind of reach outside of my comfort zone to learn about other cultures and, and so on. And so I think one of the things that's important in terms of taking empathy to action is you know, you want to have understanding, but then you have to, you know, it's, it, you can, it's easy to stay in your comfort zone and have empathy, right? You just, right. okay, well, I, I want to understand how this person feels. So I'm going to read this book or I'm going to hear this story, but to get out of your comfort zone is to actually figure out what is something I can do. And like I said, there's every, at the end of every chapter, there's actions, but one of the, like I said, I'd be, before, you know, one of the simplest things is to start understanding what is the story of your neighborhood? What is the story of where you live? And that's something that when I moved back here to the Bay Area five and a half years ago, I, I really did start kind of digging into, you know, what's the history of, yeah, even though I was at Stanford for a while and I even lived up in Redwood City, I never really knew what was the history of this area? Why does it look the way it does? You know, why do we have all these, if you, most of these peninsula towns, um, uh, tend to have uh, really weird borderlines, you know, like I actually don't live in Menlo Park. I live in the county, you know, yeah. but but Menlo Park is just across the street, you know. So it, it's really interesting to start to understand why things are the way they are. And a lot of it is connected to race and, uh, you know, trying to keep people out or let, letting only certain people in. So yeah. anyway, so action comes from knowledge, you know, knowledge, understanding, um, and yes, as, as Rhonda says, it's even good to look at who were the indigenous people who occupied the land. One thing I love about doing talks in um, Canada, the Canadians were the ones I think who started this, where you do the land acknowledgement at the beginning of a talk. And so mm -hmm. I make an acknowledgement to the Ohlone, whose land we are living on. But, um, you know, it, it's important to, 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 and what I've noticed too, is like when you go to parks and things, they start to make those acknowledgements and, and 
connecting to the history. So a lot of it is about education. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so really, I guess the, the first step is besides, you know, doing the internal work is, is educating yourself and then taking action. Um, and taking action can take a lot of different forms and we all have different levels of comfort. And I do say you have to get out of your comfort zone, but you know, some people don't have the capacity to go march or, but you can write a letter to your congressperson, yeah. right? Yeah. And that's, I wanna make sure we talk about you know, policy change. We really have to see policy change that is going to um, not, you know, I, I actually like, you know, I used to be, um, you know, somewhat, I wasn't quite sure what to think about reparations, but there's different ways to do reparations that really could lift people up. And mm-hmm. so I actually am becoming more and more a fan of reparations. Um, and that's one thing that I think we could all start thinking about, you know, what are some ways to do reparations? Um, that's going to be more in the, uh, in the discussion now. It's going to be more absolutely. in the dialogue because um, I just saw the headline. I didn't have time to read the story, but apparently in their first podcast, Bruce Springsteen and Barack Obama. Barack Obama said, frankly, he thinks reparations are appropriate. Mm-hmm. Well, when, um, what was it? David Brooks said was for reparations. I knew that the tide had turned. <laughs> white, um, white guys. <laughs> yeah. Um, I want to come to, to Malisha's question because, yeah. um, you know, uh, so how, you know, how do you safely address somebody about radical empathy without, without making them feel like you're accusing them of being racist? And, and that's why you, it's funny because, you know, I remember I was talking to somebody and I, you know, or we were having a, a webinar and I, I used the term white supremacy. And, you know, one of the guys came to me afterwards and um, was saying that, uh, you know, it really put him made on the defensive when I use the term white supremacy, because when you say white supremacy, people think of Ku Klux Klan, people in, you know, burning crosses, but that's not what we're talking about. You know, white supremacy is the structure we live in. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it is important sometimes to, you know, you don't want to put, I guess you know, my, my approach is trying not to put people on the defensive, even though I use terms like white supremacy, because I'm trying to say that we all have internalized oppression. We all have internalized this bias. And so we, if we don't acknowledge that, then we, we can't you know, get to a greater understanding. And so to safely address somebody without making them feel racist is to start telling your story. Mm-hmm. You know, Don't tell them you have unconscious bias. And that's why I like, don't like a lot of this training because it's like, here's unconscious bias and you have to fix it. It's like, no, it's tell them your story. So my Alicia, you know, I think that you could just start instead of, you know, just tell them what your life is like, tell them your story. That's what I did with this book, you know, is, is I decided that it was important for me to, to be able to tell my story. So storytelling is a really, really critical component. Um, so yeah. And, and then if you don't mind, uh, come back to Shelly's question, which is yeah. one of, one of my pet peeves is when people say, I don't see color, they aren't personally racist or don't believe they are. And that's enough when that in fact is completely dismissing the actual experience and reality of black people. How can one help move the needle with people like that or people who don't even see their own inherent privilege? In other words, not blatant racism. And that, you know, actually that's exactly what I'm talking about <laughs> is, um, you know, first of all, you know, um, I want people to see my color. I'm very proud of my color. <laughs> you know, so when people tell me they don't see color, it's like, you don't see me then. Yeah. Um, and the science is against that. The science finds that an infant yes. in months can make yes. a distinction between people of his own color and, and another color. I mean, that's just, that's just human being. We learn and, immediately what we fit with. 
And you know, to answer Shelley's question, um, the way to respond to it is say to say, well, you know, you're basically making that person invisible by saying you don't see color, right? Mm-hmm. You're and you're you're totally erasing you know, their life experience, because they are totally, we are all totally impacted by the way we deal with color in this country, right? Mm -hmm. It's not that, obviously, you know, race doesn't exist, it's a social construct, but that social construct has more power in this country than almost any other thing. I mean, the whole, uh, you know, and we we focus so much on the black-white divide, and obviously, it's really important to focus on the divides. We have so many, you know, there's intersectionality, you know, being a black woman, but there's all different kinds of intersectionality, as well as, you know, Asians and and LGBTQ and so on. So, you know, imagine, you know, would would you tell somebody, you know, uh, you know, it's like saying you don't see the clothes they're wearing, you know, we all wear clothes to, to, um, you know, because our clothes signify something, right? That that beautiful fuchsia scarf, which I want to steal from you, except that your cat <laughs> has put holes in it. <laughs> um, you know, I see that fuchsia scarf, and to me, that that signifies something. I wouldn't tell you, oh, I don't see color, I don't see your fuchsia scarf. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, it's a place of comfort for people. I think it's so much easier to say, well, I don't, see, I don't see that, because if you see it, you have to contend with it. Exactly. Yeah. And, 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 you know, so Shelly, but, you know, the answer is, um, yeah, they think it makes them not racist. No, it, 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 we're not saying that you're racist because you see color. I mean, for God's sake, you know, <laughs> um, I, we're just saying that we all have to understand what that means underneath. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, Bubba Wallace said he didn't see color. Yeah. It's like, no, sorry, Bubba. We all see color. <laughs> it's scientific that. But, um, you know, some people want, it's like when I was studying France, you know, in France, they always say uh, uh, that, you know, we don't see race and so on. And yet, you know, the poor Algerian and black kids are the ones who always get picked on by the police. There was a study, or a guy, a journalist who, you know, embedded himself in the police in France. And, in a poor neighborhood and you know it was just a culture of going after these kids mm-hmm. and i saw that myself when i was in france so we talk a little bit about um, i want to talk about the role of art and this is not how you posited it but you integrated it you were talking about the different mor- memorials to mm-hmm. what's happened the ugly mm-hmm. things that have happened because of race and you talked about little stumbling blocks in berlin where you mm-hmm. could just be walking to the store and you look down and here is where Jewish people got dragged to the trains. Mm-hmm. You know, here is where, you know, stores were broken into. And it integrated that experience into your day-to-day life because you look down and there it is. And you talked about walking through uh, a lynching memorial to all mm-hmm. of those who've been lynched. And I, I just want to address that, the power that art has to convey to us the whole of the picture that we're looking at. I know that that memorial, I have to tell that story for those who weren't here. I, I talked about it at the noon webinar, so I, I have to talk about it here. So the, the story there is I was doing a tour. Um, I, I, uh, I talked to a friend of mine at University of Alabama into inviting me out to it to give a talk at night. And so I decided I was going to do a tour of all the main civil rights uh, uh, places in, you know, and actually I didn't realize, you know, you go to the University of Georgia campus and there are all these civil war, you know, signs, signage and, and you know, how this ha- battle happened here. I was like, wow, you know, so I, I, was, I was actually learning a lot. And then I stopped in Atlanta and did a couple talks there and stopped at the Martin Luther King Center and so on. Um, 
And uh, then we um, met up at, with my friend at, at University of Alabama and he took me to Birmingham. And the amazing thing to me was that, and you know, you, this, the, and for those who have to go, I understand we're, we're gonna keep talking. <laughs> um, <laughs> the, the, um, uh, you know, the place, so you remember seeing the pictures of the, the fire hoses and the, the um, police with the dogs and all that. Well, that happened in this park that was just a, a square block. And you don't really, and, and right there across the street is the church where the four little girls were killed from a bomb. And there's the statue of, you know, commemorating the lives of the four little girls. And, and then right across there is uh, this, you know, civil rights uh, center and, and museum. And it's just fascinating. We, I mean, and, and you walk, you, you do a little circuit around the park and it talks about some of the different events that happened there. And it was just, wow, uh, you know, it just blew me away. And so then we went down to Montgomery to the National Memorial for Peace and Justice. And for those who haven't seen it, so basically when it opened, you know, that April, I, I was like, I have to go there. I just, something told me I had to go there. And so my friend Uch takes me and, you know, it's, the setup is it's outdoors and it's got pillars and each pillar is a county where there were lynchings. And so we got there and, you know, my interest was mainly, I just you know, want to see this thing. And, and, you know, it really seems like an impactful piece of art as you're saying, but, um, you know, when I got there, I, I was started walking through and I'm like, wait a second, you know, what if there was a relative who was here and you know, I just got this kind of premonition and sick feeling in the pit of my stomach. So we're going through and I'm like, well, mom grew up in Opelousas. So what was the county or parish where she lived? And it was uh, uh, St. Landry. And so I, we get to St. Landry Parish, that poem, and there's somebody named Julian Stelly on it. And I was just, holy crap, you know. <laughs> and so I look him up with the magic of a smartphone and, you know, he was from nearby Opelousas. And, you know, in 1898, he was killed by the Ku Klux Klan because he was out trying to register people to vote. And so this, you know, huge artwork to in memorial to, you know, lynching had so much power. I mean, I, and my heart stopped when I saw that. I was just like, wow. And um, and there were other pieces of art there that really, it was interesting because this was before the, the you know, uh, hands up, don't shoot thing um well it was around actually it came after but they, it, it was this piece of art um i posted it before on facebook so some folks might remember it but that is was a you know just people kind of encased in cement but you could see their heads and arms you know hands up and i thought that was very impactful so so art um you know plays such is so impactful uh and the way that they did this memorial and and so on just really had a huge impact on me and and again it's a way art and the way we do these memorials is a way to gain empathy um mm -hmm. right so people who may not it's yes exactly barbara says it's storytelling and and so it's really important that we understand these stories and that these stories are told and you, you you'll notice now you know in the in film and art and and museums that we really are trying to do more storytelling so people um understand it's like exactly it's like going to Auschwitz. Auschwitz, I can say that, um, and not feel that it was, I mean, going to, for me, going to the Holocaust Memorial, again, was one of those things that was, I found really impactful. So mm -hmm. uh, I think it's important to understand the history, but to feel the history through art and memorials is a different thing. You know what I always like to say as a last question, when somebody's dealing with some very deep and difficult topics, mm -hmm. 
what's the thing that gives you the most hope? Oh boy. Um, love. <laughs> yeah. The thing that gives me the most hope is despite all that we've been through is we still are able to love each other and to, um, you know, I mean, what keeps me going and what has kept me going through this pandemic, besides, you know, being here with my husband and, uh, and you know, my son, Brandon, and at times my son, Andrew, you know, we obviously we love each other, but, you know, that, that level of family, you know, keeping connected with my family. Um, and, um, you know, and, and you know, I, I try to make it a point to, to reach out to different friends at different times. And, you know, there've been various situations where, you know, whether it's just a phone call or a Zoom call or whatever it may be. And so, you know, that we have the capacity for love means to, tells me that we have the capacity for empathy for, and when I think about, you know, somebody asked the question, unfortunately she had to leave or she was here this evening as well about, you know, what do we do about the 75 million people who voted for Trump? Um, and, you know, that my Christian Catholic upbringing comes into play and it's like, well, you know, it's hard, right? I, and we're not gonna get along with everybody. And, um, you know, having empathy for those kinds of people is really hard. And I don't say you have to have empathy for everybody. Uh, and certainly, you know, some of us who've been on the receiving end of the violence and so on don't have to, to do that. But we do have to maintain love in our, and that connection in our lives. And I think that's what keeps us going. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks to everybody for joining us today. <laughs> Shelly, thank you for noticing my action figures. I've got Kamala Harris on the way. So <laughs> awesome. Thanks, everybody. This was really fun. And right. um, that's on the book. Yes. Thanks so much. And we'll, uh, uh, you guys can always find me on Facebook and Twitter and, and all of that. So, you know, make sure you tell all your friends about the book. And uh, we're also may make sure you tell all your friends that we're do we are doing workshops with uh, different organizations and, and trying to spread the word about radical empathy. So, you know, send them our way if they're interested. Thanks, everybody. Hi, Warren. Hey. I have to say a quick hi to everybody. Meg, Warren, Anthony, Catherine, Kim. This is like, Doc, who's, <laughs> oh, uh, what was the show where they would, uh, she would say? Romper Room. Room. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's like Romper Room. It. I see Tarrant. I see Bev. I see Lynn. <laughs> <laughs> Christina, and thanks so much for your comment. I saw your one about your son. Um, and, and yeah, so Tarrant, now you've been seen. <laughs> Hi, Craig. <laughs> All right, everybody have a wonderful evening. It's time Good night, to everybody. Sign off.